You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Before we get into today's episode of History of the Netherlands, we would just like to get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way. First of all, thank you so much to everybody who has subscribed to this show. We are pleasantly surprised by how many more downloads we are getting with each new episode that we release. But just like you enjoy listening to us, we enjoy hearing from you. Did you know that we are active on Twitter at HistoryOfNL and Facebook, facebook.com slash HistoryOfTheNetherlands? We post updates on the work we're doing as well as factoids about the history of the Netherlands, things that we come across during our research that really get us excited. If you've got feedback, comments, or if you just want to join in on the conversation, then please Connect with us online. That's exactly what Rory, or with the Twitter handle that every Rory on Earth wants, at Rosa, managed to do. He contacted us telling us how much he was loving our podcast, and so too did Andrew Bickle, who, were it not for the fact that he's not a medium-paced bowler playing for Australia in the 90s, would be our favourite Andy Bickle of all time. We are looking to grow our show as much as possible, and one of the most effective ways of expanding our audience is through word of mouth. If you are enjoying our show, please tell your friends. Reviews on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast player you use are also incredibly valuable for us. It only takes a few minutes and it helps us out so much. We put a lot of time and effort into making this show, and we want to make it as good as it possibly can be. Your help in spreading the word is invaluable. Not only do we want to grow our audience, but we are also trying to grow the type of media that we are making. Over the last month, we have contributed to a series of YouTube videos about various musea in Amsterdam with our good friend Raven from the YouTube channel Dig It With Raven. You can find them at our website, www.republicofamsterdamradio.com. Our favorite domain is podcasting, but we are spreading our wings a little bit and hope to be coming out with more videos in the future. As well as that, however, we have also been creating some audio tours of Amsterdam, which will hopefully be available on our website soon as well. So if you're one of the many people planning a trip to the capital city of the Netherlands, make sure you check out our site. 
Finally, you have probably noticed that there are ads running on our show. We are very grateful to the folks at the Recorded History Podcast Network for helping us to host the show and for giving us the opportunity to connect with other podcast makers. The ads help us cover costs, so please bear with them. If, like us, you don't like them, there's always the fast forward button. If you really don't like them, then you can also support us on Patreon. Patreon is a voluntary subscription service where you can donate money to us for each episode that we make. If you pay us a buck a show, then you will have the ability to download each episode ad-free from our Patreon. It's a pretty good deal if you ask us. Of course, you can always give more if you want. The sky's the limit. We release an episode every two weeks, but if you're worried that we will all of a sudden start posting episodes every day, which trust us definitely won't happen, you can also set up a monthly cap on how much money you give in Patreon. So if you want to support us, go to www.patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands. So with all of that out of the way, let's get on with today's episode, Weaving Our Way Through Flanders, a woolly good episode. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that over time have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. What's up, Dice? Imagine that you are wool on a sheep's back. Sometime around the early 1200s. I know, it's a bit weird, imagining yourself to be an inanimate object, but just bear with me. The sheep you are on could be a Flemish sheep, or it could be one in Brabant, or northern France, or even Scotland or England. But if being wool has been easy for you so far, just hanging around on the back of this sheep, providing warmth and shelter to various fleas and mites, don't get too comfortable just yet. Because you, my fibrous friend, are an extremely valuable commodity. Everybody uses wool. And for the lowlands in the 13th and 14th centuries, the process by which wool is turned into cloth is going to create an economic boom which will literally turn small towns such as Bruges, Ypres and Ghent into amongst the biggest and wealthiest cities in Europe. Since this process had such a big impact on the economy of the lowlands, we are going to begin this episode by taking you through this pursuit of Pursuit riches step by step as wool. This is the beginning of a journey that is going to take you through the hands of most groups that form the complex urban societies that were developing across the lowlands by the 13th century. First, you are shorn off the sheep's back. Wool comes in a variety of texture, a gradient from coarse to fine, and with fibers that differ in length and quality. Even wool from the same sheep can differ. So, after you're shorn off, you and your diverse woolen friends are sorted by coarseness, varying qualities and characteristics being destined for different destinations and textile purposes. You are passed between manual laborers, the shearers, the packers, and the cart drivers, who are all commoners, just taking any job that they can. You are then packed up and carted off to a nearby marketplace, or even straight onto a ship to be taken directly to the destination where pretty much all of the wool in this part of Europe is going to end up. 
you're going to one of the cloth-making towns of Flanders. At various stages, you are judged for your quality. You are bought and sold and then trundled off to a typical cloth-maker's workshop in the middle of a bustling, stinking, medieval Flemish town. It is one of hundreds of such workshops, and these two differ in the size and the scope of their manufacturing capabilities. Here, more unskilled laborers will unpack you and begin a cleaning process using a chemical bath that will take away oils and grease. After this, however, comes the beating, where you are strung up and hit with willow branches, removing residual foreign matter and disentangling remaining knots. You really enjoy the beating, you dirty wool, you. Colors matter in 13th century European society, and at this stage, you may be dyed for the first time. If so, then you have become dyed in the wool, so to speak, where preliminary coloration is achieved, most often by use of woad, a plant whose extract turns things blue, or another one, madder, which produces a rosy red. Blue woad is the more common, however, and leaves the most lasting impression because those who work as dyers are often identified by their permanently stained blue hands. Depending on what kind of textured wool you are, you could be on the way to becoming more coarse textiles, called woolens, or you could be finer textiles, called warsteads. Accordingly, your fibers would now be greased to some extent so as to protect you against the heavy processing treatment that is coming your way, because now it is the time for the carders to go to work. Carders use, unsurprisingly, devices called cards, which are flat boards with hooks in them, by which the carder can properly separate strands of wool and even blend in other types of wool, sometimes of a different color for various effects to appear in the end product. All of the steps in this process are necessary, but carding takes a specific knowledge and skill. When it is finished, you are tightly wound on a forked stick called a distaff. This is then to be handed over to the next group of workers, the spinners. The spinners, they will take you, you newly carded wool, tightly wrapped around your distaff, and then use their skilled fingers and a drop spindle and spin your fibers into yarn. Here we see the beginning of the final stages in this whole process. After being spun, there is an opportunity for you to be dyed again, if you haven't been already. Following this, you can now be woven from yarn into cloth. Weaving takes great skill and knowledge, and you have to know how to use a loom. By the 11th century, the vertical loom, which had been used for millennia, had been replaced by the horizontal loom, which was more efficient. This technological development was perhaps the most important in enabling the growth of an industrialized medieval textile industry. The weavers set about using their different types of threads, called warps and wefts for the weaving enthusiasts out there, to turn you, now yarn, into variously textured and colored cloth. And once finished, you might think that this is now the end of the process, that now you may have gone through enough. Certainly at this, or at any other stage really, you may be purchased by another workshop who will continue the process, or by a local draper who will complete it himself. As cloth, you happily expect to soon be wrapped around and warming the body of whomever will end up purchasing you. But no. 
This is 13th century Flanders, and the demand for the highest quality wool is extreme. It is more likely that after the weavers, the manufacturers would feel the need for the fullers to fool you. That's right. Fulling is a pretty disgusting job, actually, which involves you being soaked in another chemical bath. This one of hot water, a type of clay that they called fuller's earth, and urine. This removes any lingering grease, and it's all to make you perfect, having your little urine bath. Fulling is amongst the least respected, but very necessary jobs. After the soaking, the fuller will then hit you with a hammer, or if you are a particularly fine cloth, they will stomp you with their fuller's feet. Once the fulling is done, you can be dried as a fabric. This is done in a public space, on specially designed frames that use tenter hooks to stretch you up, under tight supervision of course, so that you don't get stretched out of proportion. This is also where the phrase, being on tenter hooks, will later derive from. During this phase, the local inspections can take place. A lot of money has gone into this whole process, and many people have many vested interests in what quality fabric you end up being. From the patrician class of landowners and rich merchants, who have usually both invested in your manufacture and are looking to purchase cloth for export, to the small-scale entrepreneurs who are pretty much trying to do the same thing. Each town has its own regulations and requirements of quality that will be enforced via these public inspections, determined by the governing body of the urban elite. Fulled fabrics at this stage can still have a fuzziness to them, and so another skill, called shearing, will be conducted, whereby this fuzz is removed. If you as a fabric are to be truly soft, however, this will happen in conjunction with another process called napping, whereby you will be rubbed softly with a certain prickly plant by which you can be made to be luxuriously soft. You may undergo any degree of repeat shearing and napping depending on desired outcomes. You may then be dyed for either the first, second, or third time before being smoothed between a flat wooden vise. And now, finally, here you are. At the end of this entire process, you are ready to be folded up, soft and smooth to the touch, and packed off to a market or sold directly to whoever will pay the right price for you. To end this train of thought, you can imagine now ending up in any variety of destinations, because by the 1200s, Flemish wool was renowned around Europe. The highest quality stuff is being shipped across the continent to clothe the nobility and to drape their manors and palaces from Italy to England. The patriciate, the urban elite who govern the towns, also provide a market for these most luxurious of fabrics, whilst the nouveau riche, those emerging entrepreneurs who have new wealth but not so much political influence, see fine fabrics as an expression of their own quality, a reason that they can be let into the upper ranks of society. Then there's the lesser quality fabrics, which might end up in monasteries and cloisters or more often in everyday households, because everybody uses wool. So any of these is your destination. Starting as wool, off a sheep's back in Northern Europe in the 13th century, you could truly end up anywhere. But almost certainly, you would have to go through one of these Flemish towns and this whole process first. We hope that imagining being medieval wool in a Flemish town was an unexpected highlight of your day, 
and that in your imagination you ended up being the best fabric that you could be. The reason we wanted to put you in that obscure position was to highlight the way the medieval wool industry became such a widespread system with so many steps that involved so many different people, and which therefore impacted the direction of Flanders and the lowlands, perhaps more than any other industry. Other regions than Flanders were not exempt from the workings, the benefits, and the consequences of the wool trade. North of Flanders, Brabant would eventually become the focal point of it. Of course, as we've mentioned previously, other specific trades like metallurgy and glassblowing also provided a focus for some other towns, but no industry became as socially impactful or as internationally potent as that of wool and fine fabrics, and no region as important as Flanders. Following the Norman conquest of England, there had been a large migration of Flemish people to England due to the large support given by Flanders to William the Conqueror. Chroniclers record Flemish settlements and the propensity in them for high-level wool manufacturing and commerce. This would have some absolutely massive implications for the world. Firstly, wool became a staple that would form the first international trade connections in Western Europe. As the demand grew higher in the cloth towns of the lowlands, imports of wool from the British Isles skyrocketed. The networks existed that could connect the British Isles with the mainland through this trade. Secondly, and arguably most importantly, although it's got to be said Dave probably disagrees, is that the Flemish weavers would eventually also bring a game over to England in which one player used their curved herding staffs to hit a ball of wool that had been bowled at a target. The idea was to, as it would be put in Old Dutch, met the Crick Ketson, to chase with a curved stick. Crick Ketson, or cricket, has since become the most beautiful sport on the planet, beloved by half the world and sadly completely ignored by the other. Either way, cricket. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Okay, or Belgian. Belgium. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. <laughs> For now, anyway. Back to wool, throughout the industry of merchants connecting different parts of Europe through their trade practices, the wool industry became the lubricant for new social and political structures to emerge out of the newly urbanized societies of the southern lowlands. As Belgian historian of the mid-20th century, Hans van Verferke, pointed out about these merchants in his fairly renowned paper on this topic called Industrial Growth in the Middle Ages, and specific chapter on medieval Flemish cloth, quote, In the beginning, they probably contented themselves with selling the wool to the craftsmen and with buying the cloth from them. But later, they supplied them with the wool on credit and eventually became real entrepreneurs, owners of the raw material during the several operations through which it progressed until it came back into their hands in the shape of a finished fabric. At this stage, even the masters amongst the craftsmen were mere wage earners, even when they, in their turn, had men working for them. In fact, they owned only the implements of their trade. The raw material was not theirs. End quote. So merchants were able to become wealthy, and some of them super wealthy, and themselves form or join an urban patriciate that developed and which held sway within towns. As industries grew with their investment, levels of workers below them existed to run the varying layers of the whole operation. 
It was an economy and a labor system that was definitely distinct from the agricultural feudalism that had been dominant in the lowlands and pretty much all of Europe up until this stage. Power had for centuries stemmed from titles and land, but now within city walls, land ownership as well as just commercial strength began to give political power to those who held no titles. The urban commercial systems did not discount the nobility entirely, however, and on occasion they themselves participated in the industrial growth, encouraging textile workers to come and set up shops in towns within their borders. Joan of Constantinople, Countess of Flanders, provided just such an example in 1224 when she offered tax exemptions to the first 50 men who came to Courtrike, a town on today's French-Belgian border, just to process wool. Despite this, the rise of the wealthy merchants and industrialists was great enough to often promote conflict between territorial lords and this urban elite. The patricians created a new power base, which could compete with the territorial lords of the upper nobility. But that is not where the power struggles within the medieval wool industry ended. The diverse roles of workers and the importance of their skills and knowledge meant that by the middle of the 13th century, patricians and nobility had to begin also contending with them. The patrician class created regulatory bodies within towns that could guarantee quality of product, and the men at the top would have overseen production at various levels. But ultimately, for the work to be done, they had to employ master drapers who would run the workshops and oversee the process. And this process, as we know having been through it, involved many other workers, some of them skilled and some just doing basic labor. It has been suggested that the workforce in this industrial revolution was mobile, and certainly that there must have been many who just followed the work available from town to town. However, the identities of cloth towns became so wrapped up in this specialized industry that a permanent growing local population of working class both skilled and unskilled, developed around it. Unskilled laborers could find work doing the menial steps in the process like packing and cleaning, whilst highly skilled carters and weavers and spinners became highly sought after. Both men and women had been caught up in the wave of urbanization and rise of the wool industry, and there was a demand for work by both genders. In early medieval Europe, it had largely been women engaged in most of the processes of making fabrics, as it had not been done in any larger scale than just at home for the family. And this was a patriarchal and misogynistic society. If men did anything in the whole process, it tended to be weaving. But now, with the industrialization of the wool business, men took over most positions and roles. The spinners, or spinsters as they became known, were almost exclusively women. But if you were a woman and you couldn't spin, the only jobs available to you were the most disgusting and the worst paid. Drapers, weavers, and dyers were almost always men. The wool processing towns that emerged then in Flanders were also competing against each other, and the demand for ever higher quality of fabric meant that individuals in each skilled role could really strive to improve, innovate, and increase their reputations. Already in the 1100s, weavers had earned a reputation as, quote, most presumptuous and arrogant of all laborers, end quote. That's from the Chronicle of the Abbey of St. Trouden in 1125. Demand for them increased, 
and being a part of a town population that depended on cloth production, but in which they and other workers had no political representation, it was only a matter of time before they tried to rectify this. And from this emerged the formation of craft guilds. As we mentioned at the beginning, we're also members of a kind of guild-like association called the Recorded History Podcast Network, and our guild is kindly requesting us to start putting some ad breaks into our episodes, so we're going to take a short interlude now and then be back to talk all about how craft guilds operated and how the city of Bruges became the most important town north of the Alps. From the 12th century, guilds emerged around Europe, beginning with guilds of merchants. The practice of uniting forces and collectively assuring security and rights is an ancient one, and we spoke in previous episodes about the Hunza trade groups that had come about with the rise of mercantilism in the Middle Ages. Merchant guilds in lowlanded towns had become, by the 13th century, the urban patriciate. With the rising population and importance of craft workers due to the growth of the wool industry, for instance, craft guilds then also came into existence. In Flanders, it has been suggested that they started as religious groups where workers from specific trades united in Christian devotion and solidarity to one another and Jesus. As these religious devotion groups became more cohesive, however, they formed bodies of people who could then collectivize their own interests and push towards garnering greater rights for themselves as workers. Craft guilds would be created for almost every type of profession. There would be guilds of blacksmiths, soap makers, bakers, butchers, etc. They would have a monopoly on their respective industries in the areas that they set up. So, for example, if you wanted to be a baker, you needed to become a member of the baker's guild in the town that you were in. You couldn't just go and bake bread and sell it. Guilds would have the task of controlling the quality of products produced to maintain the stability of prices and to fight for the interests of their members. They had a strict hierarchy. At the pointy end were masters, Below them, journeymen, and at the bottom were apprentices. To join a guild, first you had to be an apprentice. These were generally teenagers who, upon payment of a fee by themselves or their parents, would be given board and bed at a master's house, for whom they would then work, for no pay, for up to seven years, learning the skills of the trade. After serving their apprenticeship, they would then become journeymen. A lot of factors depended on how long one might be a journeyman for. Firstly, you would leave the exclusive employ of your master and be able to travel around, even between cities and towns, and work for different masters, all of whom, remember, belong to the guild. So then you would be exposed to the different characters, opinions, and political relations within the guild and between all these different masters. It could be years that you were doing this, building a reputation for yourself. Finally, when you are ready to become a master yourself, you would have to build a masterpiece. This work was to be your magnum opus, a piece that people would look at and go, holy moly, this dude knows how to weave, or forge, or blow glass, or whatever it was that you were showing your mastery at. And this piece had to satisfy the highest members of the guild, who, once you had paid an admittance cost, would rule on whether you had met the requirements needed to satisfy the demanded standards of the guild. 
But then, remembering that you had been interacting with members of the guild all these years as a journeyman and an apprentice even beforehand, you have to also hope that your reputation is in accordance with the political positioning of the guild leaders at the time. And also that the economy was in a favorable state at the time of your application. Guilds operated along almost communistic lines in controlling the specific trades they governed. Guild administrations analyzed what the market was doing, what the condition of supply was, and then decreed the work available to its members, as well as the wages. The purchase of supplies was controlled by the guild, which disallowed any one person from cornering a market or buying up excessive quantities of whatever. It could be extremely restrictive, but the system would persevere and eventually come to define public structure in the lowlands. In the cloth processing towns of Flanders, the weavers would become the largest and most powerful guild, accounting for over 50% of workers. For patricians, the urban elite who ran everything, the threat of guilds to their grip on power in towns would have become evident from fairly early on. The skilled craftsmen and low-level traders who all played necessary roles for the proper functioning of the ever-lucrative cloth industry had no political representation, but were now forming into bodies who could demand just such. As a result, the emergence of guilds was met with resistance by the patricians who tried to curb the growth of the guild's political potential. If you were a member of this patrician elite, you wouldn't want your profits being cut into just because a group of pesky weavers think they deserve more pay. As put by one of our favorites, Bas van Baffel, the patricians, quote, increasingly monopolize political power by making officers quasi-hereditary and by using or misusing their right of co-optation. From the early 13th century, they appointed their own successors, largely without interference from the rest of the urban population or the territorial lord. This applies most particularly to the College of Aldermen, which developed from the 11th century as the most important court in criminal and civil cases. This college of 6 to 14 members often also assumed administrative and legislative tasks, as well as organizing the taxation and membership was sought after by the oligarchic families. In many cities, oligarchies of only a few dozen families emerged, which took over all power. End quote. Because the urban elite controlled wages, dissent began to foment amongst the workers' guilds by the mid-1200s. There is evidence in Flemish town ordinances emerging at this time that prohibit workers going on strike, as with Douai in 1245, and that were against the assembly and formation of societies amongst cloth workers, as with St. Omer in 1250. These ordinances were passed by respective town councils comprised of the patriciate in response to strikes amongst textile workers. But these measures were, unsurprisingly, not successful in preventing workers showing their discontent. Textile workers in Ghent went on strike in 1252 and in 1274 again, along with the workers in Douai. 1280-81 saw a year of general strikes across Flanders in Ghent, Ypres, St. Omer, Bruges and other cities. In these strikes, workers were led by the nouveau riche of the merchant class who were the wealthy that were not amongst the patriciate. Guilds would become a powerful force in the lowlands over the coming centuries, and it is at this point 
that their journey towards political, social and cultural influence in the lowlands began. But perhaps the most important thing about the world trade in Flanders in the 13th century was its international character. In the beginning of the 12th century, Bruges had been separated from the sea by a very shallow tidal flat, which meant that it was only possible to get to the town by ship at high tide. This being the lowlands, a flood in 1134 had created a fairly large harbour whereby the sea came up to about 5 kilometres from Bruges city walls. This harbour was called the Zvin. In response to this, a dam was built to protect against further flooding and soon a small town grew up around it called Dummer. According to J.A. Van Halter in his article The Rise and Decline of the Market of Bruges, quote, as early as 1213, William the Briton, describing the naval engagement between the French and the English in the Zvin, marveled at the number of ships anchored at Dama and at the wealth of their cargoes. It became the terminal of navigation, linked with Bruges and with the other important towns of Flanders by a network of waterways, both natural and artificial. End quote. By the 1280s, this had become the centre of the international wool trade. The success of Flemish cloth had initially taken merchants out of Flanders to places like England, from which almost all the raw wool used in the industry was acquired. By the late 13th century, Bruges had taken the lead position of 15 Flemish cloth towns in the Flemish Hansa of London. Champagne was extremely important in France, as Flemish merchants could sell their fine wares at extensive annual trade fairs that were held there. Lowlander merchants could come and connect to Italian merchants, for instance, who in particular snapped up this famous Flemish cloth. However, this also caused a backlash by merchants of these distant places who began themselves traveling to Bruges, where they could invest capital, set up shops where possible, and arrange the transport of cloth back to their home markets. Italian merchants were big on this game, and importantly for them, the Genoese and then the Venetians figured out the sea routes to Flanders through the Straits of Gibraltar from 1277, and so the overland trade routes between Italy and Flanders, which met at the market fair in Champagne, began to lose their prominence. That prominence was taken by Bruges. Professor of Economic History Eileen Powers puts it this way, quote, Bruges did not go to the world. The world came to Bruges, and in the last years of the 13th century, she took the place of the Champagne Fairs as the international money market and produce exchange. To Flanders came the wine of the Rhineland and Bordeaux, the salt of Biscay, the iron of Spain, the corn and the candles, the fish and the furs which German merchants brought from the north, and all of the silks and spices of the Orient dispatched by the Italians in their great annual trading fleet, the Flanders Galleys. All these met and exchanged their goods, and Flanders, the honest broker, took her penny on every transaction. End quote. The switch from overland trade to vast amounts of foreign merchants and foreign ships coming and going from Bruges by the end of this century thus began to cut down the influence of the Flemish merchants themselves, and with this loss of power, their stranglehold on the labour market and on quality control was loosened and slowly taken over by the guilds. In addition to foreign merchant organisations such as the Hanseatic League, who set up offices in Bruges, 
foreign banking interests also descended upon the new capital of commerce. The two richest banking families in Western Europe, the Medici from Florence and the Fuggers from Augsburg, both set up branches in Bruges, introducing serious investment capital and services for money exchange. The impact of this industrial growth was many-layered, because the first merchants involved in the Flemish cloth trade from the 11th century were, like most people, illiterate. But it was these who had become the urban patriciate, and by the 1200s, children of the patriciate were becoming educated. And so as they themselves came to take over their family businesses in adulthood, they brought the skills of literacy with them. Therefore, registers and records could be kept and transactions could be accounted for on paper. As Randall Fegley puts it in his book, The Golden Spurs of Courtrack, and that's a little bit of foreshadowing for you, by the way, bookkeeping became a thing. And from this grew a system of paper money, which was unheard of at the time in most of Europe. That these local merchants could now read and write meant that they could keep a track of all of it from their urban mansions within the city walls. But the competition of foreign merchants drove local merchants to expand their operations even further, to set up workshops outside the cities, and to begin to employ weavers and fullers in the countryside surrounding these urban cloth centres. This new competition from workers in the countryside would be met with fierce resistance and contempt by the urban craft guilds who were fighting to protect their wages in the towns. It's worth actually looking closer at Bruges for a moment. As the most important cloth town, it epitomized how this tangled woolen web of society and politics and industry literally defined how these towns developed, even how they were structured. We are all aware by now of how complex this industry was. It required efficiency and order. For quality of product to be maintained, there needed to be regulations, not only in the small minutiae of the workshops, but in big matters like when people worked, when goods were inspected and sold. The international nature meant that there had to be processes which everybody could understand. That required a central location from which all of these processes could be disseminated. So it was at this time that the architecture of Bruges and other cloth towns began to reflect the new economic situation and the changing power dynamics of the age. The most important location in the town was the market square, around which huge buildings now began to be erected. This included a belfry with great charming bells that rang out, telling people when to start working and when to stop, as well as calling people to gather in when they were required in matters of civic justice. Great water holes were constructed in which ships' cargo would be unloaded and stored to be sold at the market. Bruges, famously for this purpose, had a giant wooden treadwheel crane, which looks like the vehicle that the sand people on Tatooine in Star Wars rock around in, sometimes in greater numbers. This crane would be powered by people walking in a kind of giant hamster wheel, which would provide the energy needed for the crane to lift goods and shift them around. It became a famous sight for people visiting the city to behold. Guild houses were also built, where the administration of the different guilds would be carried out and where members would meet the most massive of these was the cloth hall, 
funded by the wealth brought by all these international visitors in which the overseas trade was arranged. The guild halls were the center of everything in town, the prototype to what would become town halls. Now, within the cultural framework of the lowlands, there were legitimately civic buildings and a place in the town center which could be a focal point for the town's identity that was not a church or a castle, but in fact a reflection of the people and the business that was making the town what it was. To quote Emile Camel in what is admittedly flowery early 20th century nationalistic prose, those buildings, quote, stand as living witnesses of the heroic times when the alliance of the guilds was sought by the princes and when common artisans did not hesitate to challenge the power of French kings. More foreshadowing. Yeah. The spirit which raised them has left its mark on the people who still cherish to an extraordinary degree their local institutions and for whom communal privileges constitute the very basis of social liberty. He goes on, in the shadow of the Bruges Belfry, amid English, French, German, and Italian traders, a new civilization was born, which, combining the Latin and Germanic influences to which it was subjected, was soon to assert its own originality. Belgium had definitely broken down the barriers of feudalism. The same causes which had liberated her people had brought them into contact with the outside world. End quote. And that is the point of why we have spent this episode focusing on this whole very woolen topic. What the cloth towns of Flanders did was set up a blueprint of how urbanization and industry could change the power structures of Europe. Innovation and technological development in addition to commercial wealth and the establishment of collective bodies amongst workers, patricians and merchants truly shifted the nature of societies. And that shift would be reflected in the entire history of the Netherlands from that point on. What first occurred in Flanders would be replicated throughout the lowlands over the next couple of centuries and continue to replace the vestigial feudal structures that were by now doomed. The problem was, however, that the ruling feudal structures were not gone just yet. The dependence on international trade meant that Flanders was also always vulnerable to the vicissitudes of international relations, which was still very much mired in those feudal structures. Although Flanders enjoyed semi-independence from the French king, it was still technically subject to him. At the same time, however, its economy was almost entirely reliant on English wool. The French and the English were at this point well on their way to becoming historical enemies, and Flanders was right there, stuck in between them. So this would all come to a head at the end of the 13th and very beginning of the 14th centuries. At this point, you would have French and English kings, lowlander counts and dukes, nobles, patricians, guilds, commoners and peasants, as well as local and international merchants, as well as members of the church, mustn't forget the church, all with competing interests and all willing to team up with whomever they could in whatever fashion they could in order to each advance their own interests. So in the next episode, we are going to return for a while to the Game of Thrones layer of the story. And hopefully be much less disappointing. Exactly. It should have a better ending 
and see how these new players all ended up on a field together just outside of the town of Kortrijk, where they would sit down and rationally talk out their differences. <laughs> just kidding. It's going to end up in a bloody heap of dead horses and golden spurs. Should be fun. Until then, doei! This has been a production by Republic of Amsterdam Radio. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.